And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Steve. I am one of the leaders here. If you're new here, welcome. I um, want to make sure that you are welcomed. Affordable Christmas is an event that we pull off. This is our third year now, and uh, it is our way of coming together as a community to serve some of the underprivileged in our community, um, folks that are having a hard time um, basically having a Christmas for their families because of financial difficulties. We come alongside them, and we give them a way to celebrate Christmas in a way that dignifies them and, and celebrates them. And it's a practical way for us to operate in the love of Christ and just share the love of Christ with people. Now, this is our third year doing it, and uh, you get a feeling from that slideshow, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's really a kick. We have a lot of fun serving. And what's ended up happening, uh, not surprisingly, is that each year... The news gets out, and, and uh, we're coming into our third year, which means the ripple effects of the previous years are pretty big. We already have almost 100 kids signed up to be served through this year's event. That wasn't a good enough response. That's a lot of kids, okay? That's a lot of kids. Um, and what that means is that we need your help. Okay, if you've been here for more than two weeks, it is time to get involved. All right, uh, and 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 we have a table right out here in the lobby when you're leaving that you can stop and and we need gifts, we need wrappers, we need personal shoppers, we need set up and tear down, we need all hands on deck. Okay, this is an incredible way for us to serve, and 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 here's the deal, you guys, it's a lot of fun. It's a big party. It's, it's us basically just having a great time as a community, serving in our community, and I want to invite you to get involved, okay? If you're sitting there thinking that's a great thing for him or her to do, turn the fingers inward, okay? Repent and, and just recognize we need you, okay? We need you to be involved, and this is a great chance for you to do that, all right? Okay, that event's coming up, so we need you to get involved now. All right, we're continuing our walk through... Um, the book of Ephesians this morning. Last week, Bob Bickford came in and preached out of Ephesians chapter 2. And if you were here last week, um, he introduced himself. He's part of the board of Trailhead. Uh, we worked on staff together over the journey. He is in many ways um, a pastor to me. He has shepherded me and, and just been a great um, friend to me. And, and I really appreciated him coming in last week and giving me a break um, from this. I was planning on actually moving into the next section this morning, um, starting in verse 11. Um, that's what I studied all week, and then yesterday just kind of got sideswiped by some stuff and um, decided to go back into two. Not because he didn't do a great job, but honestly because my heart was being stirred about some stuff there. Um, focusing specifically on verses 8 through 10. Um, verses 8 through 10. Those verses have had a profound impact on my life personally, um, and I just, I just couldn't walk away without preaching them, um, without sharing some of the stuff that God has shown me in those. I actually memorized those verses before I became a Christian. Um, when I was in high school, 
Uh, my mom enrolled me in a Christian school, um, hoping that that Christian stuff would kind of rub off on me. I wasn't a believer um, and was getting into trouble, and she hoped that was going to be a good solution. Wasn't the greatest. Um, those couple of years were pretty rough. Uh, and I was in a, a Bible class where I spent most of my time arguing with the teacher. Um, he was the baseball coach, and he did not like me. Um, but here's the deal. He made me memorize verses to pass the class. And he made me memorize these verses. I had no idea what I was memorizing. I didn't know what they meant, but I memorized Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And, and not knowing um, that really what I was doing was, was planting something inside of me. Um, about a year and a half later when I became a believer in college, um, God would bring these verses back to my mind. I, I was, and, and I'll share more of this story when we get to Ephesians 6. There's a very specific illustration with that passage that I'll share, but just to give you a, a small glimpse. I was sitting down. I was about a believer for about a year at that point, so fresh in my faith, for the first time in my life, actually reading the Bible and trying to understand it. I'm sitting across the table from one of my, one of my friends from high school, and, and she was just involved in some really crazy stuff, um, mystical, spiritual, drug stuff. And, and it was a crazy conversation. And I knew in that moment as I was sitting across from her that I needed help, that I did not have the ability to speak truth into her life, that there was a, 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 a wall up, let's put it that way. Um, and as I'm talking to her, um, I'm like, I think I'm supposed to say this to you. And I start quoting this verse. I had totally forgotten that I even memorized it. Didn't even know it was still in my head. And it came to me word by word. And I was like discovering these verses as I was sharing them with her. And, and in that moment, the Spirit of God was totally there because I could tell that it was the exact word at the right time. The Spirit of God was in that moment, and it was speaking to her in a very powerful way while it was also speaking to me. Um, it was pretty incredible. I love these verses, and I'm going to encourage you to memorize them. If you haven't memorized Scripture before, start here. Start with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Um, it's a great place to begin. What I want to do this morning is just unpack the simplicity of this message and, and see how um, it impacts us. So just get a little bit of context. In, in chapter 2, verse 1... It begins by this. It says, you were dead in your trespasses in sins in which you once walked. That's kind of the beginning of the setting. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. As an unbeliever, that's how God sees you. You're floating face down in a cesspool of your own rebellion. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not just in bad shape, you're in dead shape, Right? You don't need resuscitation, you need resurrection. Like you're so bad off, you can't just climb out and clean yourself up. You're dead, okay? Floating face down, um, <laughs> out for the count. Take a look at verse four, jump down though. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He gave us life, made us alive. Now, this passage doesn't unpack it, but we know that that was made possible because He ultimately stepped in and paid the price we couldn't pay. He, he became our substitute in judgment so we could become Jesus' partner in blessing. And, and, and so He made us alive in Christ. He breathed new life into us. When we believed in Jesus, He made us alive, right? By grace, you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're no longer floating face down in the cesspool. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We not only got new life, we got a new position. We actually are covered with the righteousness of Christ. 
when we become believers in Christ, you are covered with Christ. You are covered with His goodness. And when God sees you, He doesn't see who you were. He sees who He's declared you to be in Christ, a whole new position. So that, and there's a purpose behind this in verse 7, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did this so that we could be trophies for all of eternity, demonstrating how powerful He is. He's going to be able to point at me and say, you want to know how powerful I am? Look at him. He was dead. I mean, he was so bad off, right? But I will forever stand as a testament of his kindness toward us, the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. All of us as believers will ultimately be creating or or be, be made new be created by Christ into a new humanity who ultimately live in the glory of God, for the glory of God, in the overflow of the joy that comes from being what we are created to be. We will forever be testimonies of the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, the central idea here is this. We were radically in need of grace, and we have a God who offers radical grace. And in that radical grace, ultimately, we should be provoked to a radical trust. It should provoke within us faith. When we're confronted with the grace of God, the natural response should be a a, a radical, unexplainable, supernatural faith that is birthed within us. Now, we're going to unpack that because verses 8 through 10 kind of explore how we, we, in a sense, enter into that how we move into that process of being engaged by grace and and growing in faith. The central idea is found in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. The central idea right there is that, that central sentence where it says, You have been saved. Now, difficulty. The word saved has become part of Christian jargon. It's become kind of a buzzword. Uh, there's a movie, you know, made about, it's like an expose of Christian camps, I think, and it's called Saved. And, and, and a lot of people, when they hear this word, they associate it with um, a certain political agenda or, or with a certain kind of moral lifestyle or, or with some sort of, of um, brand of Christianity. See, the difficulty with, with words when they become jargon, when they become buzzwords, is... is they're infused with a new meaning, not, not a meaning that's original. And the problem is this is a biblical word. So we need to take time and actually explore what does it mean when it says you've been saved? What does, that, what does that mean? Since it's a biblical word, we need to make sure that we're exploring the biblical meaning. What, what did Paul mean? What did God mean when, when this word was being used? What are we being saved from? Well, first of all, I think that's identified in the very first verse where it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We had to be saved, right? Somebody had to come and pluck us out of the cesspool and breathe new life into us. Somebody had to save us from the consequences of our own choices. And so the first way that we were saved is we were saved from the penalty of our sin. We were saved from the penalty of our sin. When, when we, as a humanity and as individuals, rebelled against God, there were cosmic consequences for that. Cosmic treason brings cosmic judgment. God, the Holy One of the universe, the one who created all of creation to reflect His glory and delight in His character, is ultimately the judge because we led all of creation in rebellion against God. 
And we do that every day. Every day we look to things that aren't God to be God for us. We look to things that aren't God and give them the glory that should be attributed to God. We, we look to, to ourselves and our achievements and, and our pleasures and our distractions to ultimately meet the deepest needs of our heart instead of turning to the one who has actually created us to have those needs met in Him. We're continually rebelling against God. There's a penalty to that. And God said the penalty of our sin was death, separation from the source of life. And we're all born in that condition of having been separated from the source of life. We all know this. I mean, you ever been around kids? Yes, right? Pleasant, wonderful little angels, right? No, they're little demons. Why? Be- because they're, they're, you don't have to teach. You, you notice you don't have to. I never had to work to teach my children to lie. Never had to do that, okay? Never had to work to teach my children to steal. Never had to work to teach my children to be selfish, and to hit people, right? You should protect your stuff. Little, you know, you, never, you don't have to do that. Why? Because they are born radically self-centered, right? And you're like, oh, well, they're infants. They just need to be fed. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they are screaming, right? They're screaming out their desire for dominance over the entire created order. That's what they want, right? You ever watch toddlers play? I mean, that's what's going on. It's World War 12, right? I mean, they're just in there, you know? Why? Because there's something in our hearts that has been broken by sin. We have been separated from the source of life. And since we've been separated from the source of life, we feel like we have to fight for life. We have to somehow come up with a solution for what's been broken in us. And there's a penalty for that rebellion. The penalty is death, separation from life. We're born with that, and if we die in that, we will forever be separated from the source of life, God himself. Jesus became our substitute. When he died on the cross, he took our penalty. He stepped into my place and died with my judgment. He suffered the consequences of my cosmic treason, paying the price fully. When he rose from the dead, it proved that the payment was complete. The, the, the result of, of sin is death. And if he rose back to life, it meant that death had been satisfied, that God's righteousness had been satisfied. When Jesus rose from the dead, it proved that my forgiveness was absolutely secured. That every sin I ever did commit, would commit, or could commit had been paid for. The penalty of sin had been paid. I was saved from the penalty of sin. And I am being saved. As a result of that, I am being saved from the power of sin. Progressively, daily in my life, I am entering more and more into the redemptive work of Jesus. When Jesus saved me, He didn't die and rise again just to forgive me. He died and rose again to change me, to restore me. The work of the gospel is a work of redemption and restoration, right? He is going to change us so that we become more of what we were created to be, right? Holiness, that big, heavy word that seems so alienating and and, and threatening is really an invitation to joy because ultimately what it's saying is when we're holy, we're, we're made right with God. We are becoming what we were created to be. And God is in the process of changing us daily so that we are more like what He's already declared us to be. So he's progressively saving us from the power of sin. And you know this if you've been a follower of Christ. You know that there's an internal struggle, that there are times that, that you know what is right and you don't want to do it, right? And, and there's, in a sense, an internal battle, right? That, that there's, there's something that is, that is difficult to enter into. And there are times that you fail and there are times that you succeed. And, and, and if you're a follower of Christ, you can probably say truly with all other followers of Christ, I am not what I once was nor am I what I will be. 
It's a progressive process of becoming more like our Savior. So we're, we're, we've been saved from the penalty, we're being saved from the power, and ultimately we will be saved from the presence of sin. Ultimately, um, the full redemption will come complete. Jesus, when He rose from the dead, sealed our full redemption. There will come a time when we get new bodies. And when we get new bodies, we will be completely in tune with the glory and holiness of God. We will be able to follow every impulse of our hearts. You ever thought about that? What's, what is true freedom? For most people, they define freedom as just being able to do whatever I want, right? That would make, by the way, drug addicts with an unending supply of drugs the most free people in the world. Are they? Not a chance. See, the issue isn't whether or not you get to do what you want to do. The issue is why do you do what you want to do? Why do you have that desire? See, the redemption of Christ actually frees us so that we desire what is good. So we no longer desire things that aren't God, trying to make them God in our lives. We are actually able to free, in a sense, to, to walk in the glory of God, desire nothing but, but the glory and holiness of God, and, and to experience His joy. When we are fully redeemed, when we are saved from the presence of sin, we'll be completely free. We will be able to follow the impulses of our heart. Why? Because the impulses of our heart will once again be completely in tune with the character of God. And what we want will simply be an expression of the joy of our freedom that we have in Christ. That's not slavery. That is freedom. So when we talk about being saved, I want you to hear this. We're talking about something that is quite holistic, right? We're being saved. And what that means is that we've been saved from the penalty of our sin. We're being saved from from the power of sin in our lives. And ultimately, ultimately, we will be saved from the very presence of sin in our lives. We're talking about a complete redemption and restoration. Now, God's plan ultimately is is to work through the gospel, the message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to restore all things. We're going to look at that next week more. This message is both radically personal and radically global. It's radically personal in the sense that this message confronts every individual with with basically a a confrontation that says, you're a sinner, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, but God has, has stepped into that, borne your penalty, He was your substitute. If you believe in Him, you can be delivered, you can be brought back to new life. In other words, if you come back to your Creator and submit to Him as the Creator, glorify Him as God, um, ultimately you'll be restored. But there's also a level in which God is working through this to restore all things. That through this same message, God is ultimately going to restore all of creation, the entire universe, once again, so that it operates within His glory, for His glory, the outflow for our joy. It is both radically personal and radically global. This morning, we're going to focus on that personal part. This salvation (laughs) is the ownership, is the right, is the privilege of every person who believes in Jesus. Look how how strongly that's worded. And I love this. It says, you have been saved. Not you might be saved. Not you could be saved. You have been saved. My English teacher is going to come out here. Um, that, that verb is um, a present participle, which means this. It's an action that occurred in the past that has ongoing present consequences. It's an action that has occurred in the past. It's unchangeable. It's done with ongoing consequences. You have been saved. If you've believed in Jesus, this is absolute This is complete. 
This statement has power. This statement has finality. This statement has authority. You have been saved. And it was ultimately done by grace through faith. That's what our verse tells us. If we look again at verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace and through faith. If I were to suddenly collapse um, uh, and some of you are like, yeah, uh, and take it to the hospital and my heart's in complete failure and they're like, well, hey, dude, we got a, hosp- we got a heart here in the, in the fridge. And I know if you're like a medical student, you're like, dude, so wrong. You don't even, I know I'm not, okay, just follow me for illustration's sake. I go to the hospital, you know, I go in, the doctor cracks me open, takes out the old one that's all rotted and bad and he puts in a new one, Okay. Um, that new heart pumps blood through my body. That new heart takes oxygen, right, and, and, and pumps it through my body, you know, and, and it's really, like, necessary. It's, like, important, right? But I'm not saved by the new heart. I'm saved by the doctor that put it in. It's the doctor that cracks me open. It's the doctor that puts the new heart in me, right? And in a sense, that's what I'm talking about. We're saved by grace, Grace is the means. God's work is the means of our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. The faith is is what ultimately allows us to to enter into that life. But it's God's work, not ours, that ultimately delivers us. God's grace is the means of our salvation. Now, grace is an incredibly beautiful word, right? Grace is awesome. So much better than karma. I mean, karma is this thing, man. It's like, what goes around comes around, right? You sow good, you get good. You sow bad, you get bad. Um, and a lot of us live our lives, honestly, like we, that's how our brain functions, you know? Like we really do kind of think we believe in karma. Ra- Grace is so much more radical. Grace is just free, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You don't do anything to, to, to take hold of it other than the fact that someone gives it to you. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned, unstoppable, unshakable, never-ending favor, an outpouring. John says that, that truth came by Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus. And it, not only grace and truth, but grace upon grace. It's like wave after wave after wave of never-ending outpouring of the unadulterated, unconditional favor of God. <laughs> you are saved by grace. Because of the work of Christ... As a believer, when you have trusted in that finished work, when you believe that Jesus was your substitute, that he took your place in judgment, you stand in God's grace and it has been given to you. That forgiveness has been given to you by grace. You don't earn it any more than you walk into a doctor's office, crack open your own chest and stick a new heart. Grace is ultimately what delivers you, right? But we receive it through faith. We receive it through faith. God's grace does the work. We receive it through faith. So let's talk a little bit about what faith is. First of all, let's talk about what faith isn't. First of all, faith isn't obedience. A lot of people honestly function in this way as if faith were this idea of obedience, that if I just do the right things, then I will eventually take hold of the grace of God and change in the right ways, right? If I do the right things, then God will like me. Um, the whole cosmo, a karma thing, right? We treat grace as if it were karma. If I can just do more good deeds and bad deeds, then the scale will be outweighed and eventually I will be okay. Here's the deal, you guys. Religion is the default mode of the human heart. Our heart 
when, it, when, when, when everything goes crazy, everything goes back to its default mode, just like your computer, the default mode of the human heart is religion. What do I mean by that? Uh, I don't go to church. I, I, this is the first time I've been ever. I'm, I'm not, when I talk about religion, I'm not talking about it in a religious way. I'm talking about it in a sense that something that we do religiously is something that we do all the time to try to fix a problem that we know exists. We're all born with an innate sense that we have a problem. We're all born with an innate sense that we fall short in certain ways. And so we all go about trying to fix the problem. Now, we do it in different ways, but we're all setting about to fix it. We all have a religion. Even the non-religious people have religion. We all have, in other words, self-salvation projects. We all know we need to be saved, so we go about trying to save ourselves. We put our little plan in place to ultimately save ourselves. And, and, and for the non-religious, sometimes it can look like, you know, like tolerance or, or helping others or, or random acts of kindness, right? Like you're up in Chicago, you're driving through the toll booth, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to pay for the car behind me. I'm just that kind of guy. I'm, gonna, I'm feeling really generous. I'm going to pay for the five cars behind me. Today, I'm feeling very generous, right? And you drive away. And why do you do stuff like that? I'm going to propose it's because it makes you feel good about you. <laughs> you even serve others from a self-centered purpose and perspective. You serve others because it makes you feel good about you, right? Oh, I just did a random act of kindness. I am just that kind of person, right? Just makes me feel good about me. Steve, you're so cynical, man. That's not me. Really? All right, somebody comes and knocks on your door. They're like, I want your house. Yeah, you can have my house. Everything in it right? I don't think so. Why? Because there's a limit to how much we're going to give. You know why? Because there comes a point where the benefit we get outweighs the cost we're going to have to give. We're as generous as we want to be as long as those two things balance out. I will sacrifice this much as long as the payback is this much. When the sacrifice outweighs the benefit, I stop sacrificing. That shows the radical self-centered nature of my service. I am doing that to make me feel good about me. That's, that's a self-salvation project. Even the non-religious have self-salvation projects, whether it's recycling or driving a Prius or serving people or random acts of kindness or what other radical acts of sacrifice people are making. Driving a Prius is a radical act of sacrifice. Um, they are... <laughs> They are religiously trying to ultimately fill that gap, right? Fix the problem. Now, here's the deal. Christians do it too. Christians do it too. See, Christians have self-salvation projects too. What they say is, is oh yeah, I was saved by grace. And what they mean by that is, is you know, maybe, maybe I've been saved from the penalty of my sin because Jesus died for me, or, or maybe that just means I've, he's paid for most of it. Um, but then we get down to, it's like we, we, you know, we believe we're saved by grace but we're delivered through obedience. You know, like, like I was saved by grace, but now I better get down to the hard work of actually becoming the person God tells me I'm supposed to be. And we think by being obedient, we're ultimately going to be saved. And, and so what do we do? Man, you hear this when people are like, hey, how's your week been? Oh, not real good. I haven't been in the Word. That's too bad. And, and, and that's a good answer. So, so what, oh yeah, man, if I could just get up in the mornings and read my Bible, then and they won't say it like this, but what they mean is then God will be happy with me. If I would just spend more time in prayer, then God would be happy with me. If I would just witness more, then God would be happy with me. If I would just get out there and do the right things, then, then God would be 
happy with me, whether it's praying or social justice or whatever it is, you realize that's the same as that game? What we're ultimately saying is if I do the right things, then I'll be able to save myself. Or then I'll be able to take hold of the salvation that God is offering me by grace, which we really mean is offering by karma. We're mixing it up. You guys, faith is not obedience. Here's what I want you to hear. Obedience is important. Obedience is important. We obey those that we love. We submit ourselves to those that we love. You know this if you're in a relationship. You submit your desires to the person you love. Why? Because you so love them, you want them to be filled with joy. You want to make their lives better. You want to make them happy. Now, even that's sinful and limited because there's a limit usually to how far we're going to go with that. But that's a good illustration because when we're grabbed hold of by the love of God, we will want to make God happy. We'll want to love Him. And obedience will simply flow out of gratitude to God. So obedience is important. But what you need to hear is that God doesn't love you more for your obedience. You cannot get God to love you more by doing the right things. You don't improve your position before God by obeying. Your position before God is already perfect. Did, remember what it said right there in Ephesians? He has raised you up and seated you in the heavenlies in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you are already seated in the heavenlies. You can't get on any better than that. You're not going to improve your position. Because when you believe in Christ, your sin is imputed or given to Christ, and His righteousness is imputed or given to you. As a believer in Christ, when God looks at you, He sees you in Christ. He sees you seated in the heavenlies. You cannot make God love you anymore. You cannot do anything to improve your position before God. We are saved by grace through faith, not obedience. By grace through faith. Now, here's the challenge. Some Christians will even take faith and turn it into a work. Some Christians will take faith and turn it into something we need to do to get a hold of grace. And you'll hear this. Sometimes you'll even, you'll even hear Christians say something along the lines of, man, if I could just have enough faith. If I could just have enough faith. I mean, some teachers will even say, if you have enough faith, then you can get God to X, Y, Z. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like as if it were a quantitative thing, you know, like I got, I got two kilos of faith, right? I need more, right? <laughs> I, got, I got a gallon of faith, right? I need two gallons, right? I got all these buckets up here and I got enough faith to fill this one bucket, but I need all this buckets filled because my life's such a mess, right? I need all the buckets filled, right? Here's the deal, you guys. Faith isn't quantitative, it's qualitative. Jesus said that if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. You know what he meant by that? The mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds. What he was saying is it's the issue of the quality, not the quantity. You don't have to like work yourself up into more faith, right? You don't have to do these little faith mantras like, I will have, you know, like, like if it's something like you could just grab hold of and give yourself more faith. You can't. You can't. It's a qualitative thing, not a quantitative thing. So what is faith? What is faith? If it's not obedience, if it's not something we do, not something we produce, here's the thing. Take a look at this definition. This is Steve's definition of faith. Faith is the response of trust 
toward a revelation of truth. It is a response of trust to a revelation of truth. First of all, I want you to notice it's a response. Truth comes in and shows me something that is true that I didn't previously believe. It shows me that I'm a sinner, but I thought I was actually a pretty good person. It shows me that, that even my good works are like filthy rags. Like even my good things are actually motivated by sinful motivations. The Word shows me all of these things. Faith is a response to that truth that says, what you're telling me is true and I trust you. Faith shows me the work of Christ and, and shows me Jesus as my substitute on the cross, dying in my place, rising again a new life for me. Faith is a response that says, you are a trustworthy messenger, so I trust the message. What you're telling me is true. Faith is a response to the revelation of truth. It is a response. What that means is that you can't produce it. You can't make yourself have faith. Some of you have been like beating yourselves up because you just don't feel like you have enough faith in your life. It's kind of a dumb thing to beat yourself up for because you can't generate more of it by white-knuckling it. You can't make yourself have more faith. Faith is a response to a revelation of truth that ultimately says, I trust the truth because I trust the truth teller. I trust the God and the character of the God who's telling me this truth. And even though it is a hard truth, even though it is a humbling truth, a truth that ultimately leaves me with no pride and no ground to stand on on my own, I trust it because I see the heart of the God who's telling me. This is the God who actually took my place in judgment, who, who was covered in my sin, died my death, and rose a new life for me. And I trust His heart. I believe. I'm fully persuaded that God is who He says He is and that He's done what He said He would do. I am persuaded. And because I've been persuaded, I trust. That's why faith ultimately is a gift. Take a look at verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. What that's saying is, is that it's all grace, you guys. Even your faith is grace. Even your faith is a gift from God. God gives you the faith that is in response to His truth. He gives you your faith, which is, only makes sense. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, if we are face down in the cesspool of our own trans transgressions, we don't just need someone to come along and shake us and wake us up. We need someone to come and breathe new life into us. God does that. God gives us the very faith we need to respond. Here's the deal. We need to see faith as a gift. And we'll talk about how to grow in your faith in a minute. Here's the danger if we don't see faith as a gift. If we don't see faith as a gift, we're going to see it as a work. We're going to see it as something we do for God. And if we see it that way, we're going to see God as our debtor. We're going to think God owes us. We're going to look at our sacrifices, our meager attempts to improve our lives, 
our giving up of this and sacrificing that and, and making ourselves uncomfortable in this way and all of that, and then we're going to come to God and basically be like, you owe me. Now, we would never say it that way because we've been trained probably a little bit too well to do that, right? So we sanctify the language a little bit, but we know the expectations of our heart, and we know when, when we're coming to God with that sense of entitlement, God, you owe me, right? I'm going to give you a little tip. Pastors are like the worst at this, right? Pastors aren't like the holy. I mean, these are, you know how many times it's like, I'm praying about something and I've got this in the back of my head, this little message that's going like this. Well, God, you know, I moved. You know, I gave up my 401k. You know, I, I, I stepped, you know, I did this. You know, I did that. And what I'm doing is I'm putting God in the position of a debtor. And when God doesn't do what I think he's supposed to do, I feel gypped because I felt entitled. You guys, we need to see that our faith is not a work that we perform to impress God. It is simply a response. And in fact, even that is a gracious response, something given to us in response to him revealing truth to us. God reveals truth. We respond in trust. That will free us to rejoice, even in our faith. If you think about it, it's really ironic. Last week, Bob gave a great illustration talking about the free gift of, of salvation and specifically of faith. Um, and, and he talked about how, how ironic it would be if he threw a Christmas party, you know, Christmas morning, his kids come down. You guys remember this illustration? It was a good one. Uh, his kids come down and, and they're like, hey, great presents. You know, let's, let's celebrate. And the kids are like, no, we're going to go clean our rooms first. Really? Why? Well, I don't know feel like we earn on our gifts. That was a great illustration. I mean, it really would be weird huh, um, for that to happen. But let's take it a step further. I'm going to tweak his illustration. I'm going to take it, tweak it. Um, what if your kids, instead of coming down to the Christmas tree, instead went to the, to the bathroom, went under the sink, grabbed the, the cloth you used to clean the toilet, went into the kitchen, scrubbed the dishes, stacked them up on the counter, walked back into the living room and said, can we have our gifts now, please? We earned them. You're like, you did not. <laughs> you just made it worse. What would happen in your heart as a parent if your kids came demanding the gifts you bought to give them freely, and they demanded it by doing things that were, in fact, stupid and destructive, but they thought they were helpful and felt incredibly entitled because they were helpful? I mean, what's that going to do to your heart as a parent, as the giver of the gift? You're going to be like, this isn't feeling real good to me right now. Here's the deal, you guys. God will not be indebted to man. First of all, because it's idiotic. Second of all, because it can't happen. We can do nothing that puts God in our debt. And yet we do that all the time. We come before him with our good works. We come before him with our meager efforts. And we look at him and we say, we deserve. You owe me. I had enough faith. I did this. I sacrificed that. You owe me. And really all we're doing is heaping up our pile of disgusting, dirty rags, and saying to him, isn't this beautiful? You owe me. Here's the deal, you guys. Faith is a response of trust, not a work that claims a reward. Because God will never let us earn from him what he freely gives. It will be received as a gift or it will not be received at all. Because if you're still trying to earn it, you know what that means? It means that you're still not quite believing the gospel. 
that Jesus was sufficient. That Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That Jesus earned a position before God that you could not earn for yourself. If you're still trying to earn it, it shows that you're still not quite fully believing the gospel. So how do we grow in our faith? How do we actually grow in our faith? If we can't produce it, but it's not something that we can white knuckle and say, I will have more faith, how are we supposed to actually grow in it? Well, I think there are ways we can grow it, and that's by actually walking in ways that, that we're nurturing that faith and giving it, in a sense, the, the fertilizer to grow. Let's put it this way. God, God gave us all the gift of strength, right? We all have strength, some more than others. It, it came intrinsically with the muscles that He gave us. We can actually make choices that will help strengthen those muscles. We can increase in our strength, right? We didn't produce our strength. That strength was a gift to us by God, the one who created our bodies. But we can actually do things that will increase our strength. God gave us the gift of faith, and we can do things that will actually increase our faith. How do we do that? Well, if faith is a response to truth, we need to feed it truth. This is why we need to read our Bibles. We need to be in the Word of God, reading the Word of God, so that it will, in fact, increase our strength. Because as we're confronted by the truth of Scriptures, God will reveal things to us that we need to believe. He will lead us into godly repentance. He will lead us into the freedom of His truth. And we will grow in our faith as we are confronted by the truth of who He is and what He's done. We don't read our Bibles to try to get God to like us more. We don't read our Bibles as something we do so that God will eventually smile at us. We read the Bibles because we desperately need the truth that are, that's in our Bibles so that we will grow in our faith. We need to walk in community. We need to be with other believers, right? Why? Well, we talk a lot about here about the benefits of community. We talk about how your, your joy is more joyful and your pain is more tolerable if you're walking with other believers. We put a, a lot of, of emphasis on the value of actually being the church and not just going to church, living in community, right? It's incredibly important. But here's the deal. We don't move to community just because it, it makes our lives better. We move to community because God has created a community that will ultimately confront us with truth. God will use community to make us more like Jesus. As we learn to live the Christian faith with others who are trying to learn the Christian faith, we will be confronted in good and godly ways, sometimes very hard ways, with the sinfulness of our own hearts, with the areas that we need to expose to the grace of God and to grow out of in the grace of God. We need to push into ways that we will be confronted with truth in the Word, in community, in prayer. We need to serve not so that we can get out there and, and, and make a name for ourselves, not so that we can, again, try to earn God's favor by sacrificing for others. When we serve, we're pushing into our weakness. We need God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Um, a lot of people have had uh, wonderful experiences on, on short-term mission trips, you know, like where they go overseas or they, you know, go over the river and, and, and they serve in, in areas that are, are, and, and, that are hard or, or have been hit economically and they go build a house or they, you know, they do this stuff. And, I, you know, I'm not completely sold on the value of all short-term mission trips, just to be honest. Um, a lot of times it's show up, do a work, disappear. And the long-term impact for that community is minimal because there aren't people living in, in, in community. But my point isn't to go on a rant about short-term mission. My point is this. Here's the benefit. For some people, that's the first time they've ever stepped out of their comfort zone and had to depend on God. For, for some people, it pushes them to an uncomfortable place where they have to rely on God in a deeper way and they see God actually show up and do stuff. 
That's what I mean when I'm saying push into ways that ultimately provoke your faith. You're going to push into the truth that God has revealed to you. You're going to push into the Word, into prayer, into community, um, and, and into service. And as you do it, you're not doing it to earn God's favor, but to experience more of God's grace. And as you experience more of God's grace, it will provoke in you a deeper, more powerful faith. Faith is a response to our hearts being confronted with truth. We can't create it, but we can foster it. And in the end, it's all grace, you guys. It's all grace. It's all a gift of God. And and when we really get this, I want you to see how incredibly freeing this is. Because what it means this, in, in in the final stage, in the final thing, is this. We are not our own workmanship. A lot of us live our lives as if it really were up to us. I am my own project, (laughs) and I'm whittling away at myself, and I'm molding myself, and I'm working on myself, and I'm disciplining myself, and I'm beating myself up, and I'm acting as if I were my own workmanship, as if I were somehow producing something that will eventually be presented to God, and I'm really trying hard to make myself look good. You guys, take a look at verse 10. For we are whose workmanship? Say it, church. Whose workmanship? His. We are God's workmanship. Do you understand how radically, completely freeing that is? You have been saved, believer, in Jesus. You have been saved from the penalty of your sin. You are progressively being saved from the power of your sin, or from the power of sin, and you will be delivered saved from the presence of your sin. God will complete the work He began in you. You are His workmanship. It is not dependent on you. (laughs) For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the irony, you guys. When we get this wrong, we think they're our good works. That We think these are the things we need to do to make God happy. These are the things we need to do to make ourselves right. These are the things we need to do to fix ourselves. These are the good works we need to apply ourselves to so that we will be right. Because we are His workmanship, These aren't our works for God. These are God's works for us. In other words, our faith frees us to a life where where it is a life of obedience, a life of becoming increasingly holy. It is a life that that we will be changed, that that God does expect our works to change, but, but we're no longer working for our acceptance. We're working from it. The works we do are not to impress God. The works we do are because we are impressed with God. We look at the radical gift of grace and are so undone, so moved. We love Him because He first loved us. And in that, we want to follow. If He gave us this great gift, how could any other gift be less great? We will sacrifice. We will risk. We will obey. 
but not because we feel like we have to, because we're afraid of condemnation or rejection. We'll do it because we want to, because we love the one who has loved us. We are His workmanship. Even the works that are in front of us are the works He's given us as a gift to change us to be like Christ. You guys, listen to me. God doesn't use you to get ministry done. God doesn't need you. God uses ministry to get you done. God doesn't use you to get the good works done. He uses the good works to get you done. You are His workmanship. Let's throw that last slide up there. If we get this, you guys, follow me. You will no longer work to gain God's acceptance. You will work from the security of your acceptance. When you really get this, you will no longer work to gain control, control of your life, control of people's lives around you, right? Parents are sometimes the worst at this. They feel like, man, my child is my workmanship, and they just are in, they try and control. You know what, you guys? You stop trying to gain control because you work from the security of His control. You don't work to try to improve your self-image. Instead, you work from the security of the image that He has given you, who He says you are. This is radically freeing and will lead us to lives of radical boldness and joy. Saints, uh, sinners, you have been saved by grace through faith. And even that faith is a gift of grace because you are His workmanship. And He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let your heart sit in that. Let that grace soften you and it will change you. It will do for you what no amount of self-effort ever could. 